0: Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorne. Formed in 1940, Britain's Special Operations Executive, or SOE, was given a mission to covertly coordinate resistance work overseas. The organisation's operation in France or F-Section, sent more than 400 agents into Nazi-occupied territory, 39 of which were women. In her new book, Mission France, The True History of the Women of SOE, historian Kate Vigas interweaves the story of these 39 female agents. And on today's podcast, she discusses some of their experiences. Putting the questions to Kate was our acting digital editor, Eleanor Evans.
2: How did women first come to be employed by SOE and how unprecedented was this?
3: So women's first started to be used in uh, spring of 1942. Now, there was no direct order. It was just sort of an organic thing. There had already been two women in the field, Virginia Hall and Christina Scarbeck, also known as Christine Granville. And they'd proved themselves. Um, And it became obvious, really, that women would make a a good addition to the teams of the SOE agents already working out there. One of the reasons it's prevalent in France is there's a forced labour programme, the Service du Travail Obligatoire, which made men of military age, um, meant that they were rounded up by the Germans and sent away into forced labour and factories, for example. But there wasn't such a programme for women. So women were able to move around a little bit more easily. I'm not going to say it was easy, but just that little bit easier. Uh, so SOE decided, yeah, let's, let's start to recruit women. Uh, so they started to look for women with the right qualities. They wanted women who could speak French fluently, who could blend in with the French countryside and who had patriotism, both for France and for England. So they started to look for women like that.
2: Right. Uh, and perhaps it's worth uh, reminding readers what the situation was in occupied France at this time. Um, you mentioned there were already two agents who had been in the field. But um, what was France, the France like that these agents began to be dropped into in the in the early 1940s?
3: So the first agent to go in was in May of 1941, and he landed into nothing. There was there was nothing set up for him. There was no resistance networks. Uh, he had the name of one person. So the situation was, it was brand new. Um, they had to set everything up. They had to meet people who they hoped were going to be loyal to their cause and not collaborators. It's, it's well known there were a lot of collaborators in France. Uh, the situation at the time was France was in two zones. There was an occupied zone And an unoccupied zone. Uh, And agents were sent into both to work alongside the resistance. And it was in October 42 that France was completely occupied. So it was a very difficult situation. There were food shortages, there was um, military presence on the streets. As I said, there were collaborators and people really didn't know who they could trust or who they could work alongside.
2: Right. And as you say, as you've already mentioned, the situation then for women, it seems that women will perhaps blend in a bit more easily in this situation. So can we talk then about um, how some of the 39 women you're writing about, how did they, how were they targeted as recruits? How did they come to be recruited? Uh, They come from so many different backgrounds. It's quite unbelievable, really. Um, One of
3: the main uh, methods of recruiting was through the Women's Auxiliary Air Force because they had women who were already skilled wireless operators. So some people were brought forward that way. Their wireless skills were recognised. The WAF had been sort of forewarned to to look out for people who might be suitable recruits for the SOE. So there's people like Yvonne Basden who come in through that route. Some of them come in through far more spurious ways Uh, one agent was invited to talk about her deceased husband's pension. He'd been killed at El Alamein. And she came along thinking that's what she was going to talk about. But actually, they'd got wind of the fact that she might be a suitable recruit. Another agent sent in photographs uh, to the wrong place and they ended up with the SOE. Others were heard speaking French at parties or were recognised through their place of work. The Ebury Court Club was a bit of a spies, secret agents kind of club. And a couple of agents were spotted there. So any which way you can think of, you couldn't put an advert in the paper, say secret agents wanted, you know, minimum six months in France. It just wasn't the way you could move forward. So they came from all sorts of routes. I think the most obvious one, it's people who'd already worked with the resistance or already worked on escape lines. Some of them had had to escape themselves once uh, they'd been denounced to the Gestapo. Uh, some of them escaped across their own escape lines across the Pyrenees and made their way back here to England and were deemed to be suitable recruits. So, yeah, completely um, random way of finding people, but it seemed to work.
2: Yeah, absolutely, and and the diversity within this group is is it's such an interesting factor, and perhaps, well, that'll come out I'm sure as we talk about a, a few more of them. Um, but I want to pick up on the question of suitability. Is that one that still remains uh, up for debate, especially with hindsight, with what happened to many of these agents?
3: Yes, hindsight's a wonderful thing, isn't it? And um, we can look at it now or through the veil of some 80 years later and say, well, she shouldn't have gone or why did they send her? Um, yeah, suitability is a, a massive, massive issue. Uh, it comes down to a lot of factors, really. Um, I think perhaps the most famous one would be Nouriniyat Khan. She was a Sufi. She was a, a pacifist of sorts. She she couldn't lie. A terribly quiet just lovely person, I think, but not really cut out a secret agent material, bar the fact she was an absolutely exemplary wireless operator, and they desperately needed wireless operators in Paris at the time. So it was almost a foregone conclusion that once she was accepted into SOE, she would be going no matter what. And her training report... Uh, Is quite famous amongst uh, people who are into this subject, uh, not overburdened with brains, and Buckmaster, the head of F, writes in the margins, we don't want them overburdened with brains. Um, Buckmaster was adamant that he hadn't made any mistakes, and he hadn't put anybody's lives in danger. But like I said, hindsight is a wonderful thing, and we can now look back through those files and think why on earth did you send her? Then again, there were other agents who had dreadful reports who turned out to be absolutely superb. One of them, Jacqueline Nairn, uh, you know, they really weren't keen on her. And yet she turned out to be one of the best agents that SOE had. So suitability is a very difficult thing to gauge. And you were saying about diversity. You've got people from Woolworth's shop girls through to Polish countesses. You've got teenagers through to middle-aged and further women. The oldest was 55 years old. It's such a huge, diverse range of class, age and experience that it's very hard to say who would be the obvious success stories and who might not be quite so successful.
2: Right. And yes, there's there's such poignancy in looking at, well, knowing what we know now about their fates and Mm. the comments that were made before. But obviously, they they all went through a very rigorous training um, regime. And I wonder if we could talk a bit more about the the aspects of their training. Uh, Is it Buley. Am I saying that correct? It is, uh, yeah. The Bewley's the finishing school, yeah.
3: <laughs> so, uh, yes, there was a, a way of training that was invented in 1940. Originally, of course, it was invented for the men, some of whom would already have military experience. So, the first part of training would be at the preliminary training school. This was typically Wanborough Manor in Surrey or uh, Winterfold later in the war. And the preliminary training school really was to weed out people who weren't suitable. It was a way of sorting the wheat from the chaff, if you like. Um, Agents were taught all sorts of things. There's a bit of basic firearms, some physical training, bit of Morse code, little tasters of, of what was to come in a way. And the preliminary training course lasted two to three weeks. It wasn't terribly long, but at the end of that, they would have worked out who they wanted to keep and who they wanted to move on. It's very interesting what happened if you weren't successful because um, they were sent to something called a cooler. Now, I don't know if women went to this, but you've been taught things that you probably shouldn't know in everyday life, like how to kill somebody or how to pick locks. Um, and it's a bit like wartime garden leave. that kind of shut them away and, and gave them a useful job <laughs> until the war was over. If you were successful, you'd then go on to paramilitary training up in Scotland. This was um, learning the way of the land, if you like, learning uh, what to eat, uh, how to kill things, how to survive off the land, uh, explosives, weapons training, And something called close combat and silent killing, which were developed by two former Shanghai policemen, Fairburn and Sykes. And they taught you to use your bare hands to kill somebody. Um, And they also had a knife, uh, the Fairburn and Sykes knife, because they were modest chaps. Um, And this knife um, is still the commando dagger today. And women and men were taught how to use these, taught how to use uh, firearms as well. Lots of different types of firearms that they might encounter in occupied territory. Then the bit that I just can't begin to imagine, which was at Ringway Aerodrome, which is now Manchester International Airport, and that was parachute training. Um, Some of them said it was the most terrifying thing they'd ever done, that it was unnatural. Why would you jump out of a perfectly serviceable aircraft? Um, Men and women were trained to the same, so the men would chivvy the women along and take the mickey out of them and, oh, but you're not going to do it. Um, but they did. They did it and they succeeded. There were accidents with both men and women. Um, smashing your face against the side of the hole of the aircraft was quite common, known as ringing the bell. There were sprained ankles and so on. The women did, some of them did get their wings, but they couldn't really wear them because what's a, a nice young girl doing jumping out of an aircraft? Um, it's not something that women were being trained to do publicly, at least. So after parachute training, if you were going to be a wireless operator, you'd then go to Tame Park in Oxfordshire to learn how to code, how to do Morse code, how to use your wireless set, how to fix it, how to deal with oscillations and jamming and all that kind of stuff. If you were already good at Morse code, that could be quite a quick course. For some people, it took quite a long time to get up to the speeds that were required, which were very fast indeed. They were only really recommended to be on air for 20 minutes. And then the one you mentioned, it's Beaulieu in the New Forest, and that was the finishing school. That's where they had to live and think as if they were already in France. They had a mock interrogation, uh, and they had to live under their cover story. They did all the way through, but this was the most important place where you you mustn't speak about your personal life. And if you did, you were out. If you couldn't keep that secret here, Lord knows what you'd be like in France. So, yeah, Beaulieu is the place that people say they were... They felt that they knew what they were fighting for. It's such a beautiful corner of England that they used to go for walks out in the grounds of the Abbey and, you know, seek solace out there. And there's a lovely memorial there today to that effect. So five training schools and then to a flat in London uh, to await orders or, or they could go home if there was going to be a bit of a gap.
2: Okay, so that's that's a phenomenal amount of training, but yep. <laughs> even with with all that, I mean, just imagining the immense bravery. I know not every um, every one of these women was parachute dropped in, but you know, the, to be parachute dropped in and then have to bury your gun in the ground and and find your way out. C- can we talk about um, some of the tactics then that these women had to use after this kind of very? whistle stop experience then to blend in and find, you know, link up with their colleagues. What what was that sort of like? So some women would parachute into a reception
3: committee which means that there were resistors on the ground waiting for them. Some, unfortunately, also jumped straight into the hands of the Gestapo if they'd been sold out. Madeleine Damamon didn't have a chance to prove herself at all. She literally landed at the Gestapo. Um, But the hope would be that there would be a reception committee waiting for you. Um, Nancy Wake's story makes me laugh um, when somebody said, oh, I hope that all trees in France bear such beautiful fruit. And she told him to cut the... uh, Cut the nonsense, to put it politely. <laughs> Get on with it. Um So, yeah, hopefully they'll be met by a reception committee. They would bury their parachute, as you say, uh, and possibly their sidearm if they'd landed with one because nothing really gives you away quite so much as having a gun on you. Um The parachute silk, of course... Terrible waste. A lot of French ladies would have enjoyed that for their dresses and underwear, but it's the way it is. And then they would, um, they'd have been given a mission. Uh, They would have been told where to go, who to meet and how to meet them. Quite often, they'd have been given passwords or phrases to include in a sentence. I think one of them had to say the number of fish that she'd caught, something like that. So. Their first port of call, they would already have been told. Maybe it was to get to a cafe in the local village, or maybe it was to get the train into the nearest city. Most of that would be done alone and terribly, terribly incriminating stuff on you. If you're a wireless operator, you've got a suitcase with your wireless inside it. Um, it must have been absolutely, you know, just terrifying. I can't think of another way of phrasing it. And of course, our identity papers were forged as well. So if they, encountered a spot check at a railway station or on the train, they would be terrified. Is this going to stand up to scrutiny? Do I look like I'm English? Do I sound like I'm English? Um, Do they know that a parachute landed the other night and they're looking for the parachutist? Once they'd established their connections, they'd then try and find a safe house or would be allocated a safe house. And then it would be from there that they'd work under their circuit leader. So all of the women initially had a, a male circuit leader. They never sent women into. um to set up the circuits themselves it might be a matter of um what happened later that would then lead to them becoming circuit leaders but the idea was they would then work either as a courier which is taking messages backwards and forwards spending a lot of time on bicycles and trains and traveling or as a wireless operator which is a very lonely job um just waiting for your next schedule your schedule transmission and 99% boredom 1% sheer terror
2: Uh, And is it fair to say, obviously amid um, this kind of terrifying existence, that there were women who, I mean, some of the tactics that they employed, I mean, I think a couple of things that rem- I remember from the book particularly one woman who strode about in tweed and perhaps wasn't under the radar <laughs> but then one woman um, one agent who got the, the gold earrings that was were popular in here region yes. of France to blend in I think you know that there are elements like that that are just really so There are there are little
3: things they had to do to fit in the gold earrings I love um, everybody in that village was wearing big gold hoops except her she's like oh I need to get some of these hoops because I need to look like I fit in um, yeah the tweed suit How English can you get walking about in a tweed suit? Uh, And her circuit leader said, no, 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 we we can't do this. We can't have you walking around looking so blatantly English. And they did play on their femininity. They did do things that would... um, Get them out of sticky situations, oh oh officer, the chain's fallen off my bicycle. I wonder if you could help me and batter eyelids and hopefully that way get through a security check or um, you know really play on the fact that they were women and initially the Nazis didn 't believe that women had the gall to do this they didn 't think that women were a threat to start off with, um, they thought they would be passive that they would do like German women were forced, you know, to to be under the the thumb, if you like. And they were really quite surprised when they suddenly realised that women were going to fight back. And there are some ingenious things these girls did. Um, One of them bit her tongue to make it look like she had TB. One of them uh, stood there coughing and saying, get back, get back. I'm recovering from scarlet fever. Uh, And one of them said she was putting up a washing line and it was actually her aerial. And this this German chap helped her he didn't realize what he was doing because she was just butting her eyelids all the while um and I, I just think it's incredible what utter bravery to to front it out like that yeah
2: absolutely <laughs> hugely resourceful um I but I do want to ask about um the human element because I, I there's a lot there are a lot of instances where um relationships are formed or not formed as a, a as a um, case of butting heads or or the male agents not wanting to get then close to the female agents. And what kind of new element did the fact that women were in SOE introduce? And what are some examples of some some kind of more human relationship elements of all this?
3: I think one of the obvious elements is the tension between men and women. Now, Selwyn Jepsen, who was the recruiting officer, said that women have a, a better ability to work alone. Men always work together. Women have a cool and lonely courage, which was going to be the title originally. Um, So they very much thought that women had the ability to to be independent. But the problem is when you put anyone together in these wartime tensions, whether they be in England, whether they be in occupied France or anywhere in the world, nobody knows if they're going to wake up tomorrow. They don't know if they're going to get hit by a bomb, if they're going to be arrested, if they're going to be rounded up. I think the tension was incredibly high. And that adds then to sexual tension. There there were relationships that formed between these agents. We've got lots of relationships. Um, Mary Herbert and Claude de Bazak get together. <laughs> they have a baby. Can you imagine that? Having a baby in occupied France. Um, and there are several um, examples of that throughout the book. Um, Julienne Eisner, we think, may have had an affair with Henri Derricot. He's a whole other story because he ended up um, being suspected as a double agent. But yeah, these these people did get together. Some people were already married. Yeah. Um, the uh, um were already married. It was a husband and wife team and the husband's brother out there. And then you've got someone like Pearl Witherington, who actually is the only agent I uh, know of who went out and actually met a fiancé out there. And they did a really good job. It's all, you know, Charlotte Grey would have it that everyone flew out to find their lovers. But Pearl actually did. And they worked together. And um, yeah, and they worked very well. But then you've got tensions. You've got real tensions. Um, I suppose an obvious example of that is Tony Brooks and Lisa Basak. She went out for her second mission thinking she was going to be the circuit leader. And he couldn't, He just couldn't stand her. He just thought she was full of herself. She didn't understand their politics. She didn't understand the way that they were working because politics plays such a huge part in the resistance. They're not just fighting the Nazis. They're fighting each other. The communists and the gaullists. they're all loads of infighting. And Brooke said that Lisa Basak just didn't get it. She just didn't want to muck in and and join in. He he just couldn't stand her and she couldn't stand him. So she went off and found her brother and worked alongside him for her second mission. And then you've got Anne-Marie Walters and Starr and they really hated each other. Um, And if you ever read uh, Anne-Marie Walters' book, Moondrop to Gascony, it just ends. It just suddenly ends and she leaves France. And it's taken a long time for us to find out why, Um, but there were tensions between those two, and she actually brought a court martial against him in the end. So, yeah, relationships, friendships, hating each other, loving each other—it's all there. It's all happening. (laughs)
0: Still to come on the History Extra podcast.
3: My favourite part of her story is where she tells me that she woke up in Sweden having been liberated from the camp and it was in the Natural History Museum and she said, and I, I looked up and there was a skeleton of a dinosaur above my head.
1: <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate You need indeed.
2: So, if we can perhaps uh, give a bit of context then to the work these women were doing, I know it's probably impossible to to quantify exactly, but I think one event that you write about extensively is D-Day and the impact they may well have had on on that. Can we can we pick up on some of those?
3: Yeah, I mean, so D-Day is such an incredibly important um day for everybody, of course, but especially for SOE and the resistance, because it's what they'd been waiting for. This had all been building up to the start of the liberation and D-Day had to be a success. So the highest number of agents that were in the field at one time were there at D-Day. Some of them were in prisons, which is just dreadful. Um, They'd been arrested uh, and they wouldn't know about D-Day for a long time to come. But those who were active in the field would have been involved in the preparations um, running up to D-Day itself. So it all starts uh, several days before, of course, um, D-Day. The first D-Day message that went out on the wireless was the 1st of June when they got a standby message. And that's when targets were re reconnoitered and weapons were cleaned and everybody was given a job and knew what they were doing. So as the Allies are preparing on the English coast the French are preparing the interior. And I always think of it as being like a pincer movement. If it hadn't been for the resistance doing what they did in the interior, the Allied invasion, would it would have been successful, but it would have been slower. Because what the resistance did was they slowed down the Germans. There were nearly 960 acts of sabotage against the French railways alone on the 5th of June. And this meant that all the Germans who were told to get to normandy because of course they didn't know it was going to be normandy um all the people who were mobilized they couldn't get there they couldn't get there by train if they were mobilized by roads the resistance were putting out um plastic explosive out into the roads they were throwing out caltrops to blow up tires and there was guerrilla fighting as well there was hand-to-hand fighting not only that, uh, we cut the, we, they, the SOE agents, cut the phone lines. And that meant that the Germans were driven back onto the wireless sets and the boffins at Bletchley had cracked Enigma. So, we knew exactly what they were talking about. So, SOE really played a massive part in D-Day. And the women played a massive part in it too. Although they were trained as wireless operators and couriers, some of them would have been out there hands-on doing the acts of sabotage. Uh, Pearl Witherington, or Corneoli, who I mentioned earlier, uh, was caught in um, a cornfield a few days after D-Day. She was uh, caught in an ambush and she was in this cornfield all day in the blazing sun. She was just hiding out. Um, several of her Maki, her, her group, were killed, but not as many as would have been had she not been the leader. Uh, but there's a cracking account uh, in the book of her being stuck in this field, watching the aircraft go over and not being able to get out until nightfall. And then some agents were dropped in deliberately to to assist with D-Day. Uh, Violette Szabo, Jeanette Julienne. Um Sonia D'Artois all went in around D-Day and their role was very much to, to make D-Day happen, to make sure it was a reality.
2: Yes. Yeah, so clearly a, a huge Im- impact there. And there are so many other accounts uh, and uh, examples in the book of of these agents you know, making huge sacrifices, showing huge bravery. And I wanted to ask about their recognition more generally. I imagine some of the women in your book will be more well known than others to to people coming to the subject. Um, can, yes, can we talk yes. about
3: that. Yeah, absolutely. So after the war, uh, SOE comes to light quite quickly. Uh, I always compare it with Bletchley, where you still get ladies today saying, "Oh, I worked at Bletchley Park." You're like, did you? It's, it's eighty years ago. Everybody signed the same Official Secrets Act, but SOE was kind of unique in the way that things came to light after the war, and there are several reasons. And one is the decorations of agents; they were given. Awards and medals very quickly. Virginia Hall was decorated even during the war. and those those decorations, those medals are brought into public light. People can read them in the in the London Gazette. So the three George Cross recipients, uh, Odette, Sanson, Violette Zabo, Nore Yat Khan, their stories and their citations would have been made public quite quickly. George Miller, who was an SOE agent, wrote his first book, Mackie, in 1945, believe it or not. Anne-Marie Walter's book's out in 1946. And tragically, the war trials uh, for the concentration camps, natzweiler Ravensbrück, Sachsenhausen, um, Dachau. These war trials, of course, are public. And because of the relentless work of Vera Atkins uh, of the SOE office after the war, finding out what had happened to her missing agents or the men and the women. These war trials included their names and, and that became public too. So to counteract the negativity, the war office started to produce positive material, which is where we get the books like Odette and Carve Her Name with Pride. So, yes, they become very famous very quickly. Even This Is Your Life, there's two agents on that, Yvonne Cormo and Yvonne Baseden, featured on This Is Your Life. Great. And
2: I, I think I skipped us ahead a little bit there because it would be um, definitely of interest to talk about the fates of some of these agents, which, as we've alluded to when talking about Noreen Yat-Khan, that, you know there's a lot of tragedy there and uh, awful lot of um hardship so
3: several of the women were arrested some of them as a result of being denounced um some people just wanted the money some of them it was just a, a pure mishap uh one of them I think it's Lillian Rolf was found asleep at her wireless set she was just exhausted and didn't get a chance to put it away and was found, you know, fast asleep. Whereas others were sold for the the price on their heads or for jealousy for for petty reasons. A lot of them uh, would have been taken eventually to Paris to the Gestapo headquarters, either at the Rue de Source or the Avenue Foch, and they would have been kept at Frayne Prison, which is on the outskirts of Paris. And we've got lots of accounts in the book of the experiences at Frayne and what would have happened at the Avenue Foch, which can be generally described as brutal interrogation. Some were tortured. Some had the most horrific things done to them. Um, but on top of that, you've got things like sleep deprivation, lights being shone in their eyes, and the sheer terror, just the sheer terror of being in front of the Gestapo would probably have been enough. We don't have any evidence that any of the women broke. We There's nothing to suggest that any of them gave anybody away. The idea was that you would try and stand up to torture for 24 hours 48 if you could which would give your circuit time to disperse. Eventually they were or some of them were transported to uh, Karlsruhe prison and some of them were transported directly to Ravensbrück which is the w- the only women's only camp just on the outskirts of Berlin. The ones that were held at Karlsruhe stayed there for quite a long time there were still interrogations privations, not being fed properly. Um, Yat Khan was kept in, not that prison, she was in a different one, in chains. She was manacled um, because she tried to escape from Gestapo headquarters in Paris and the head of Gestapo was fuming and um, sent her away in manacles so she couldn't even feed herself or wash herself. The women who went to Ravensbrook would have ended up uh, in forced labour to start off with. There were eight of them all together. Uh, they would have ended up digging roads, um, making airfields, working in factories. The Siemens factory uh, was based at Ravensbrook, So they would have been put into forced labour. And... They, they suffered terribly. There's just no denying it. Um, one of the women, Cicely Lafour, was um, taken to what was called the Jugendlager. It was the youth camp. And they were told that conditions at the youth camp were better than at the main camp. And she found it to be completely the opposite. The windows were jammed open. The beds were non-existent. And if they had anything at all, it was full of lice. Uh, they took the women's winter clothing away from them and forced them to stand at roll call. Uh, and eventually when Ravensbrück had a gas chamber, it didn't run for long, but they did have a gas chamber and she was taken back to the main camp and she was gassed. And then you've got the three women who were sadly executed in the winter of 1945, you've got Denise Bloch, Lilian Rolfe and Violette Zabo and some survived. Odette Sanson was kept in solitary confinement for months. She was treated appallingly. The heating was turned up. It was turned off. She was fed. She wasn't fed. She got tuberculosis. Um, But because she'd claimed she was Winston Churchill's, or she was married to Winston Churchill's nephew, they kept her alive. Barely, but they did keep her alive. And she eventually was liberated, in fact, by the commandant himself. Eileen Nen escaped on the death march, she managed to get away. Yvonne Basden was rescued by the Swedish Red Cross and Yvonne Rudelaar was unfortunately um, taken from Ravensbruck to Bergen-Belsen and she died just after the liberation. The other women who were imprisoned um, were taken to Dachau and to Natzweiler. Uh, That's because they were the nearest camps. And in a strange way, they, they were saved the privations of living in a concentration camp, but they were taken and they didn't know what was going on. The four girls at Natzweiler were executed by lethal injection, which I go into some detail in the book as to exactly what happened to them, which we've been able to piece together from affidavits after the war. And the women at Dachau stayed there overnight and then they were killed by gunshots. So it's a brutal, brutal thing. It's all because of something called the Nacht und Nabel, the Night and Fog, a directive from Hitler saying that anyone in the resistance will be killed and there will be no trace whatsoever, which is where the work of Vera Atkins comes in.
2: Right. There's some, Well, all of them in, incredible um, and extraordinary stories. And I wanted to talk a little bit more about um, your, your research and your interviews for the book because you interviewed some of these women and the their families and the families of individuals involved. What, what was that like?
3: Interviewing the actual agents was just the most incredible experience of my life. It really was. Uh, I met Yvonne Basden, Um, She'd only just moved back to England from Portugal. And we spent some time in her flat uh, talking through everything. And, you know, she was amazing. She said, why Why are we talking about the war? I've done so much since. So self-effacing and such a gentle soul. Um and I was very fortunate to become friends with Yvonne. So after that initial interview, I met her several times. She took me for lunch at the Special Forces Club. Um, I went round to her. When she moved into a nursing home, I went round to see her. Um, so we stayed in touch for a long, long time. And I got little s- snippets of story. Um, my favourite part of her story is where she tells me that she woke up in Sweden, having been liberated from the camp, And it was in the Natural History Museum. And she said, and I I looked up and there was a skeleton of a dinosaur above my head. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's lovely. And she was so, so poorly. But to remember that um, was incredible. And then I went to France and interviewed Pearl Witherington She was reluctant a little bit at first, but oh my goodness, when we got chatting, we didn't stop. We spent two days just talking Um, and she was brilliant. Uh, And the thing I remember about her is when we were talking about silent killing and she said, my dear, it's not how hard you hit them, it's where you hit them. And she just gave me one of those looks which intimated that lunch should be on me. She was great fun, so yeah, it was it was brilliant to meet them. And I I met several other agents too. Bob Malubier and I got a little bit tipsy in Paris. Um, Nancy Wake, I met very very briefly. I didn't have the opportunity to interview her, but um, yeah, it's been great to meet them. And like you say, some of the family members have been so uh, open with their time and with their information. It's been it's just been fantastic.
2: Yeah, absolutely fascinating stories there, and and such a fascinating process to look at all of these. 39 stories in tandem, I imagine. And I, I wanted to ask about, um, really, we've talked about how disparate they are in terms of background and class and motivation and suitability. But w- is there anything that you can say about them as a, a group having looked at their stories in this way?
3: There's nothing that hangs them together other than they speak French and
2: they join the SOE.
3: But patriotism and bravery and just wanting to do something... For, for a better and higher good. They weren't prepared just to um, stay at home. Now, I'm not saying those that stayed at home didn't contribute to the war. I mean, how can we overlook you know the nurses and the auxiliary forces and munitions workers? Everybody played their role. But this was a very unique opportunity that they took. I don't believe that they saw themselves as trailblazers. I think they saw there was a job to be done and they would do it. I think it's us as historians who've now gone, what an amazing thing that this is the first time women were used and have continued to be used in secret services since because they proved that they were perfectly capable of it. Um, But yeah, it's that patriotism. It's that bravery. There's just something
2: about them that makes them extraordinary people. Wonderful. Well, um, it's brilliant. I've, been, I've loved reading about them and I encourage our listeners as well to check out Mission France, The True History of the Women of SOE. Uh, and Kate, thanks so much for joining us and talking to, about the,
0: talking to us about these women today. Thank you. That was Kate Bygers. Mission France, The True History of the Women of SOE is published by Yale University Press and is out now. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley.